Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they are happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's risks, excuses, obstacles, opportunities, both missed and taken, successes, regrets, curveballs, weaknesses, strengths, and perhaps the hardest lesson of all, being wrong, they are the reason they are the person they are today, the person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. My guest today is Anna Martha, the psychotherapist and best-selling author who has taken her knowledge and made it accessible to many outside the therapy room to help them access mental health advice. With nearly 200,000 followers on Instagram, she has become one of the most trusted voices talking about mental health, motherhood and more on the platform. Anna was born in Bromsgrove and studied social psychology at Loughborough University before earning a certificate in psychotherapy and counselling and then an MA in psychotherapy and counselling. She has worked consistently as a counsellor and psychotherapist and now director of Anna Martha Psychology is also the author of three Sunday Times bestselling books. Her podcast, The Therapy Edit, is described as pep talks packed with grounding words for motherhood feelings and tackles everything from how to accept help from others and how to deal with resentment. Anna runs a series of courses via her website covering subjects including anxiety, people-pleasing, self-worth, new mums and more. She is passionate about sharing her insights on the tools and strategies that have changed the lives of her clients and transformed hers too. Anna Martha, welcome to the Emma Gunn Show. Wow, that is a, that's, yeah, it's quite something hearing it all uh, read out there. It's, it is weird, isn't it? It's like, here's what you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think we, you know, life is so full on in the moment that you kind of, you rarely pause and, and look back and think, oh, I have done some stuff. I have a friend who whenever I start complaining about the fact that I'm not where I want to be, she just stops me and says, if you told Emma a year oh. ago that Emma a year, Emma here and now will be doing this, you wouldn't stop it. Yeah. It's quite good advice. It's so, that is so helpful. Yeah, I often think. Oh, yeah, I have that same thought. And it just, yeah, I wouldn't have dreamed of it, actually. I didn't even know that you could do therapy like this. So was it not ever, was it not the plan? No, no, I was working in GP surgeries and uh, in my living room on my sofa, seeing clients there, you know, didn't even do anything online back then. Wasn't really even on Instagram. And I downloaded Instagram because I was moving house into a new build house and was like, what do I do with all these white walls? And found whole communities of people that had uh, new build houses and were also wondering what to do with their white walls. And so that's why I did screenshots of lamps and stuff. So that wasn't hounding my friends. And then I remember someone saying, what do you do for, a, for an actual thing? <laughs> and I said, I'm a therapist. And I got a couple of questions my way around, have you got any tips for anxiety? And I thought, wow, I can share some of that knowledge here and take it out of that therapy room and I didn't even know that that was a thing and and that's kind of where it where it started the so, little seed yeah the tiny little seed so little lamps what was the what um what was the draw to become a therapist because I do think that it attracts a particular type of person and yes, it people does that need therapy normally <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I really I really I really do think that when you become a therapist you tend to get the therapy that you needed 
all along. And I think so many people that I trained with, they just wanted to help people. They just wanted to help people. And often those of us who thrive so much on helping people, tending to maybe try and sidestep our own stuff. Mm. You know, the people that are the ones that everyone goes to, the the kind of the agony arts, the friendship groups or the mums on the nights out. You know, they're they're the ones that find it, I don't know, it's like a role. Mm. And, and often there's a reason. And there was definitely a reason I found it easier to support other people. Um, and I found it quite hard to let people support me. So it was the perfect job, really. <laughs> I can carry on doing that forever. And we're going to come on to this because at some point you do have to help yourself, but maybe that's a little bit further along in the journey. Okay. So let's start. So my first question to all my guests is, what is your relationship like with risk? Because I think that, and I'm not a psychotherapist, so you can tell me, I think that's a really interesting, it's a very confronting and exposing question that always sort of lets people's guard down, I think. Yeah. I'm a risky person. Oh. But I also think I have a real privilege to be able to take risks. So, for example, when I moved into London, I just kind of got the cheapest flat going and I could, I really wanted to get a job in marketing, advertising because it sounded really fun. And I, I, I think I just earned enough money to pay the rent so that I could, I could take some risks as long as I had enough money to kind of pay to get by. Mm. It didn't really matter. And then I took the risk of going into training and I, my grandfather had died and left my mum a bit of money. So I kind of borrowed that and then kept paying it back. And and then also with my husband, he's got quite a consistent job. So I could take that risk of starting a therapy practice. So I think I love taking risks. I'm not the, uh, my husband tends to be the the kind of the one that's really thinking about worst case scenarios. You know, he's always playing devil's advocate with me when I'm like, oh, let's do this. And he's like, oh, should we just think about that? So I, I don't know, I'm quite um, impulsive maybe. But then I think I tend to have some kind of safety net mm. there. So I wonder what I'd be like if if there was a, I don't know, an opportunity that came up and I didn't have that safety net, whether I'd make that jump. So how did you transition from marketing? And I do believe that many women in their 30s and 40s go into either marketing or journalism because all of the all of the protagonists in the films that we watched growing up. That's so true. Were female journalists working in marketing or yeah. something else, a lot of advertising. It was so I just think we all thought, I'll do what they're doing on the cinema screen. But what was the transition from yeah. a job like that, which is quite media, quite um fun, to what you're doing now, which is a lot of work, a lot of intense study. Yeah, it's very different. So I I did a psychology degree and I absolutely loved it, but you couldn't really go and then be a psychologist. It's one of those kind of degrees where you come out and you're like, oh, I've got a psychology degree, but I can't be a psychologist because that's another however many years of training. And I decided, do you know what? I literally, I remember going to a friend's house for a party and she had a pencil on her desk and it was really nice branding and it was for an advertising agency. So I was like, wow, that's where's that from she told me that she'd done kind of a placement there and I thought that sounds amazing so I used to come down to London visit my then boyfriend wear a black dress go and sit in a coffee shop and just basically hound all of these different ad agencies I found on Google and say can I come and have an interview and I got um I got a, a job on reception and and that's how I got into it and I, I just 
just because I didn't really know exactly what else to do. And I liked the idea that you could, I don't know, do something in in the in branding. I thought that was really cool. But mm. honestly, I was good at it, but I I, did, I hated it because I'm not naturally that good at admin. And I worked as an accounts executive and it was all just admin mm. and I was good at it because I was I knew I was bad so I couldn't trust myself <laughs> so I, I had to work so hard and I remember going into a, an appraisal and they said you know Anna if you just work a little bit harder on this and that you can get a promotion and I burst into tears because I thought I don't want to get a promotion I don't even like I don't like it at all so That's I a harsh realization it, yeah yeah but I think Sometimes we just kind of end up on this, this I don't know, like a conveyor belt, mm. and you almost feel like you just look around you to see what you should want, and then mm. you go down that route. And sometimes we go too far down that route, and then we feel like we can't step off. And I feel grateful that I did step off. I think it's incredible to step off, and also because I think that we're sold this idea that yeah, you've got to get on a path. You can call that path, but really, it's kind of it, the it's a path that has momentum. So it is like one of those uh, walking things yeah. at the airport. Yes. But sometimes you have to vault over the side or run in the other direction because it, it's the wrong one. Yeah, and I and I ended up working in for temp agencies and doing all sorts of kind of data input and admin. I worked in Sainsbury's head office switchboard, which I flipping loved. Why did you love that? I just loved the variety of people that I was sat with and I loved racing to pick up the phone and you know we'd we'd have these call logs to see who'd log the most the most calls <laughs> and I you know we were all just competing and it was fun cuz I decided at that point that I was going to do my psychotherapy training so I'd sit there with my books as well and kind of read between redirecting calls around the building. Interesting. So I just yeah I loved some of those some of those jobs. And I know that you'd done the degree, so it was kind of maybe it was an obvious thing once you decided that marketing wasn't what you were going yeah. to do. But what was the kind of final push that meant, okay, I'm going to commit to this again? So I, I'm trying to think, I I knew that I loved the psychology, but a lot of places wouldn't take you until you're 25. Mm -hmm. And who were how old at this point? I was 23, 24. So I think it was because of the life experience thing, you know, because mm -hmm. when you're 25, then you've got all the life experience oh, yeah. you need. You've got it all under your belt. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I had to wait until I was 25. So that's what I did. You had to buy some time. Had to, yeah, absolutely. So was it a big risk though? Was it something that, uh, felt like given all this, all the work that you'd done up to that point, cause you'd still put some years into your other life if it were, yeah. was it, did it feel like a big jump? Did you have people saying, is that really a good idea? I think... I was just so excited. I think I'd worked out that the corporate kind of the advertising world was just not not for me. And I think that would just cause me to to reassess things. And I think I was going through a really hard time mentally. I was really, really low. I was feeling really depressed. And a lot of the things we're going to touch on will we'll kind of give insight into how that came about. And I just, honestly, I really think I just wanted to help people. That's, that's what gave me purpose. That's what made me feel valid and like I deserved my place in the world. And I think because I was feeling so low, I felt even more driven to make that my job. You know, I feel good when I'm helping people. So therefore, I, you know, and I'm going to formalize that and make that a thing for me. And that, that's going to be my, my life. I'm going to help people. Mm. 
We've talked about that, but I'm going way off course because actually when we talked about what your biggest risk was, you said it was marriage. Oh, and I you did. said that you have all of life answers at life's answers at 25, but marriage is something you did at 24. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. So I started my training just after we got married and it was like the hardest, one of the hardest mo points of my life. And, and, and marriage was a risk in the sense that, you know, looking back, I felt so grown up, but I was also so broken. I was such a like, I was so vulnerable. I was so, I, I just, I think I, all my life I'd felt like I had been the grown up, like right from the, right from being very small. So my sister had cancer when I was really young and she died when I was 10. And my way of coping was very much even then to be the, to be the good one and to be the kind of the neat person, not to, not to upset anyone with my own grief. Um, didn't want to kind of set, set anyone else off or worry anyone. So I very much learned at a young age to kind of wrap myself up quite neatly. And I think that just started, there's only so long you can do that and suppress so much of yourself in the process of being easy for everybody else. And I think when I got married, I started realizing that that out of pursuing to to do that, to to make life easy for everyone else, I was actually hurting the people that I love the most because it was painful for them to see me struggling mm -hmm. because no matter how independent you feel you are, you can't you can't be everything for yourself. And I think you can end up shutting a lot of people out who would like to be your support network. Um, and I think that can be very hard to see. So some of the ways that I w was coping, there was a lot of kind of disordered eating and just a lot of kind of control. And I thought that that really only affected me. But I think when I got married and started living, literally sharing a house with my husband after we got married, I started realizing that actually that was painful for him as well. And it just gave me this whole new perspective on kind of just control and perfectionism. We try and keep ourselves under wraps. We end up keeping other people out. And really mm. life, the richness of life is about relationship. And we kind of, yeah, we just, we hamper that, that opportunity for people to get close to us. Mm. We're constantly trying to hide so much of ourselves. It's, it's really complicated, isn't it? That idea of you didn't want to be a bother you didn't want to be difficult or to cause any stress and actually to try to be the sort of the greasiest wheel yeah is is impossible because it means that you just have to completely suppress your needs and wants yeah and who and who you are you know constantly almost kind of looking around you to think who does this person need me to be how does this person need me to be and I was just constantly trying to change yourself to fit what you think that is. And the thing is, the people that love you, they want you and, and all that that looks like. You know, the wholeness of who we are, the, 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 the idiosyncrasies and the quirks and the, you know, the, the toxic bits. You know, we're, we're all of those things. And, and we can, you know, I think I just wanted everyone to have half the half of me that felt the acceptable mm. bits but then that's not all of you and people start wisening to that they do and interestingly you when we when I asked you what your um 
recurring excuses that you've made for yourself. It's this idea that if you share how you feel or express a need, you'll burden them. And that um, learning to be vulnerable is one of the things you've had to do yeah. in order to not let that excuse hamper your experience of life and people. Mm. I think that's the bravest thing. I think often we see vulnerability as a weakness, but honestly, I think it, it, it saves lives. And I think I used to be someone that very much had this external, and my therapist used to say this to me. She used to say, Anna, there's, you, you tell me everything that is challenging and then you tell me how you're sorting it out. She was like, there's no room. There's no room for me to say anything. Why am I even here? Mm. You know, and I think I just had this shield that said, I've got this, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm sorting it out. If there's anything going on, it's fine. I've got this. And actually, you know, life became a lot less exhausting, a lot messier when I said, actually, I don't have this always. Mm. And that's not failure or lack of strength. That's just fundamental humanness. Mm. We we can't have our own backs all the time. Mm. It's just not sustainable. It's a survival mechanism, really. And it's, yeah, it shuts people out and it shuts a big part of yourself off and we deserve more. I think when I read your answer, I thought I completely understand that. But then I think I can speak for listeners and I can definitely speak from some of my own experience where being vulnerable and asking for help, you don't always get the help that you want or that you need. And I think that can be really challenging and it's difficult to say that out loud because obviously people that I care about listen to this podcast. But I think for a, for a while when I was really struggling, I would say, I'm really struggling, I need some help. And yet the, sometimes I was expecting too much or I was expecting people to deliver something that they simply didn't have the emotional tool, toolkit to help me with. And that made me feel even more abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it can really, that can be really painful. There can be a grief sometimes attached to that when you start realizing that certain relationships, perhaps they're not able to, to meet that cry for help or that request for support sometimes we don't even know what that actually looks like if they say tell me how I can help you and we don't know what that is and then I think there's this whole sometimes leaning towards this desire to point out the good stuff and I remember at a really challenging time in my life when I was going through kind of postnatal depression I, I reached out to a friend and she said but Anna look at what you've got you know, look at what you've got. Just be grateful. People would kill to be in this situation. And I thought, yeah, and I am. But I'm also mm. suffocating within it in a way. And I think we can be both. We can be both of those things. But for many people, it is that coping mechanism. And I think we lent on it so heavily in the pandemic is that someone else is worse off. You know, kind of mm. almost use that as leverage to make yourself feel better. And I think we can, gratitude is an amazing tool. Like, oh my goodness, I use it all the time. It brings balance to the challenging emotions. However, I think what we sometimes do is use that gratitude to invalidate. Mm. And and I think often that's what we come up against when we when we take that step of vulnerability, is that, that kind of leaning towards the gratitude that actually you already have. Mm. 
You just need someone to sit with you in the messy stuff too. Mm. Is there a way to be efficient at being vulnerable? So is there a way to open up and finally say, <laughs> I do need your help or I do need your support and get back what, what you actually require? Is, is that a skill or is it just a opening up? I think first of all, we really need to start acknowledging what we need to for ourselves. Um, I think a lot of the invalidation emotionally that we receive comes from ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like in both the way that I've just spoken about, but also, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms, don't we? Maybe numbing those emotions or finding ways just to kind of shove them aside or busy them out. So I think the first step is really starting to label them for yourself and maybe just simply saying, you know, I feel really overwhelmed and that's okay. Not, I feel really overwhelmed, but I should be grateful. But, you know, so many people would be grateful to be in this situation and kind of beating it over the backside with a gratitude <laughs> stick. But just starting to just acknowledge it for yourself and think, well, what do I need? Mm. Because then I think when we can start to validate and recognize and label our own emotions, we need less of that externally. So, do you know what I mean? Like mm. We don't, that if someone these days, if someone doesn't get where I'm coming from or they're not able for whatever reason just to kind of sit with me in that feeling, I can do that and I can validate it. So mm. their invalidation or their lack of responding in a way that I need isn't a statement anymore of how valid that is. So I think that's a great place to start. I think another thing to do is, is just test the waters. You know, think of someone in your life who has historically been kind and supportive and then maybe just give a little something. So next time they say, how are you? You know, you might want to just give a little bit more than normal. You might say, oh, I'm okay. I'm just having a bit of a rough day today and see what they say. You know, we can just kind of edge our way in and, and grow in confidence with certain people. Like we don't have to rip the Band-Aid off straight away. Um, it can be quite painful to do that if we don't have that kind of internal validation going on as well because it, then it's even more painful when we might get or not get what we need mm. it's interesting what you say about um what what their reaction is and whether they validate your feelings because I think I don't know whether it's a I was about to say I don't know whether it's something that women tend to do more but I guess that's just from canvassing friends and the majority of my friends tend to be women but I would say that a lot of the time I'll have conversations with friends and I'll say things like, this has happened. Am I mad to think this is such and such? And it's like, you already know that you feel that way. You want me to give you permission or you want me to say, it's okay that you're feeling like that. Yeah. I think we do that a lot with our emotions, especially the um, perhaps more heightened or extreme ones. Yeah, I think we just want to feel, we want to feel like we're not going mad. Mm. You know, We want to feel like, it's okay to be feeling this way. And a lot of the stuff I talk about on social media, I talk about the really taboo emotions of, especially in the, on the backdrop of motherhood, kind of anger and rage and resentment and boredom and you know, all these feelings that so often we, they don't kind of match up with how we feel we should be feeling, perhaps as mothers or perhaps as women or perhaps as partners. And we have a really high bar sometimes for the emotions that we we kind of feel are acceptable. Mm. And just because you're a partner or just because you're a mom or just because, I don't know, you you still have the full spectrum of human emotion. I think we just really make 
strong, we just apply such strong meaning mm. to them. Um, emotions are just fleeting. They're not necessarily statements about how much you care about someone or don't. It's just a human response to what's going on in front mm. of you. I think we apply a lot of meaning to the feelings that we have sometimes. It gives them a lot of power. So we start questioning ourselves. Yeah. Was that something when you first started talking, the way that you were on social media, was the sort of the, I'm maybe not enjoying this as much as I thought I would? Or were there a lot of whispers around the feelings around motherhood? Because as much as there are wonderful things about it, there are obviously, yeah. it's the hardest job in the world, famously. And yet, perhaps we, it's taken us quite a while to, I say us, I'm not a mum, but it's taken people quite a while to be okay with saying that because God forbid you do yeah. express anything negative about having children. Yeah, I know. And and I think, again, we need to be able to validate those in ourselves because we're not necessarily going to get that external validation when you speak some of these things out. And I think I have the absolute privilege as a therapist of speaking to so many people. And I know full well that the emotions and feelings I have are very common. So I can speak with a confidence, right? I don't have shame around rage in motherhood. I might have shame around some of the behavior that comes out of the back of that. <laughs> but, you know, I know that the more that we kind of wrap these, these emotions up in kind of rules, the more suppressed they become, the more they spur out. You know, I was thinking the other day with my my husband, we've been married, oh my gosh, like 13 years or something now, so I got married so young. And I was thinking, I we bore each other, we annoy each other, we, you know, sometimes want space reach from each other. And that's because we're humans in relationship. But yet when when we have those feelings around our children, suddenly it's not okay. Mm. But yet we're still humans in relationship. And it's these kind of really conflicting rules that we've kind of built up. And yet yeah, it feels taboo to say some of these things out loud. But I think that's the important thing to start kind of, I don't know, putting cracks through the shame mm. because it's just, we all have those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. We should, we, yeah, no feelings should be associated with shame. Yeah. Um, I asked you what one of your biggest obstacles is that you've had to overcome. And uh, I, think, I think this is where we're going to get deep because you said people pleasing and that it impacted every decision you made and every word you spoke. Huh. Yeah. How did it show up for you? In every single way. I mean, I just gave, I gave myself away until there was regularly no, nothing left. Like my diary would be full to the brim of helping, you know, things, doing things for other people or or just saying yes to everything. And, you know, I'd be, I'd be overthinking everything that I'd said. Have I upset that person? Have I, you know, if a text message was sent to me with a slight, I don't know, essence of anything I'd be in pieces kind of overthinking and then I needed more validation or I was kind of just looking for a sign that they weren't cross with me and it was it, it was it was everything like my I didn't really have any boundaries I just let them get steamrolled because I just wanted to make people happy and I thought well that's not a bad thing is it and people do like you to the main when you're trying to please them and you're saying yes to everything like it, it kind of works mm. so I mean the only reason I have a pained expression on my face is because everything you've just said is what my life was for a, a really long time and um yeah the, the, I think it's that thing you're constantly worried that 
someone's going to not like you. So yeah. you go above and beyond. That was definitely my experience as a people pleaser was I will always be available because God forbid I'm not. Yeah. So there was obviously some rejection and abandonment issues there as well. But it would be going above and beyond, reading a text message. Um, oh, I'm not, that sounds a little bit funny. So I'll say something super nice in yeah. my next message when I reply and I'll reply really quickly. And the whole time I was in those dynamics, I was just trying to keep some sort of level where I felt safe, I guess. And actually one of the most freeing things is releasing your grip on those yeah because then you realize what they what they really are and one of the hardest things is going into therapy and realizing that actually you can feel really abused by that person or those people but after a certain point you come to realize you are also getting something out of it too oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah and hearing people pleasing termed as people pleading mm. oh like that that just shone a massive flashlight on the whole thing for me. And, you know, I I would never like to think that I was manipulating people, but actually I was. I was desperate for to, to manipulate the way that they saw me. Um, and I would have never, like, to me, it felt like an altruistic way to live mm. when actually I was needing so much from everybody yeah. around me. And... Oh yeah, there's a there was a manipulative element to that of desperation, and it's not because I was a bad person or because I was mean. It was because I was scared, mm. really. And that's why I think with people pleasing, the biggest thing that we can do for ourselves is start to recognize our value without anyone else is pleased with us or not. Otherwise, we're just taken on this absolute roller coaster of. I'm a good person, I'm a terrible person, I'm a good person, I'm a terrible person, based on how someone worded a text message. Mm. And, yeah. It's so up and down, isn't it? It's this, It's this. your your mood is entirely dependent on how someone else is treating you. And so, as you've just said, the work comes from building your own self-esteem. And I don't know about you, but I definitely got to a point where I realized I've never done that because I've always put someone else first. I thought I was worth so little that I thought my effort was best spent building up somebody who I already thought was amazing. Yeah. So it was, again, selfish. It's like I, I put them on a pedestal and I was like, I'm going to raise you up even further. And I didn't think I was, I don't know if you had this experience, I didn't think I was doing it selfishly. I didn't think there was anything um, bad in what I was doing. But at some point you do realize I'm not getting anything back. You're not getting nothing back. And it, it just breeds resentment mm. in the end because, you know, you might do th something for someone. Maybe they didn't even ask for you to do it or they didn't want you to put quite that much time and energy in. So they're not going to they're not going to shower you in all of the thanks that you feel you deserve for the mm. cost that that had to you. And often there was huge hidden costs. I might turn up to a party not wanting to be there and then they don't even speak to me because they're speaking to their other friends and I'm thinking I'm absolutely exhausted. I didn't even want to come here and now you're not even talking to me. You have no idea how tired I am because I've been out doing things every other night. And it's that, yeah, it's a lot of weight for other people to carry and they're not even realising yeah. the meaning of that to you. 
So you get let down quite a lot. Mm. It's a big ask on people and it's, yeah, it's a lot for you. If someone's listening to this and they're suddenly realising that they are caught into in a real people-pleasing dynamic, uh, what's the first what's the first way out? Like, what's the first step you need to take? I think it's starting to recognise, you know, do you believe that everyone has equal value as a human? You know, I think of my kids and I think of the people that I love in my life and I think of, you know, even the people that I was sat on the train with that I know that if I really got talking to them and really I'd love to know their stories and I, you know, you'd think you'd you'd find empathy and compassion for people that you don't even know yet. And I think if we got equal value as humans and if that is true, then then where, where have you, why are you, you know, where are you in that? And why are you the exception to the rule? And... I speak to so many people who just really struggle with some of the kind of basic fundamental self-care aspects of like hydrating themselves, drinking enough water, you know, just resting, sitting down without feeling guilty that they're not doing stuff. And you think, what what are those things saying of your worth? You know, what we show ourselves what we think of ourselves and how we speak to ourselves and treat ourselves just like with other people in our lives. And you know, some of us are consistently bullying ourselves. So no wonder we're going out into the world and, and feeling like we're not deserving of help and love and support and fun and rest and equal treatment. Mm. You know, I never used to take the last biscuit on the plate at work. Never, <laughs> no matter how hungry I was, I would never take it. <laughs> and now I think I'd probably be like, does anyone want this biscuit? I'm a bit hungry. You know, it's like I have equal right to space on the tube. I have equal right to a biscuit, you know, and I think, yeah, so it's starting to think where have you been placing yourself yeah. and what have you been saying to yourself and how you treat and speak to yourself. I love the biscuit thing because it's almost like if you take the last biscuit, then people will notice. If you take, if there are 10 biscuits and you take the fifth biscuit or the sixth biscuit, you could get away with being somewhat invisible. And... I think when I think about 10, 15 years ago when I was in definitely in dynamics that were people pleasing and perhaps who weren't very healthy, I would almost try to leave them as though I was never there. But also, you know, if I yeah. sat on the sofa, I would get up and fluff the cushion as if I hadn't sat there because I didn't want to hurt the sofa. I didn't want to do it. Do you want to make those give anyone the job of like fluffing the cushion because you'd been there or yeah, I'd go to someone's house and they might forget to offer me a drink and I'd just be really thirsty and I wouldn't say, oh, do you mind just grab, if I can just grab a glass of water? You know, and I would now. And it's, you know, where's your voice? Are you valuing your voice? Are you valuing your literal space in this world as equal to that of those around you? Mm. And it's really hard to do that when our internal dialogue and those little kind of behaviours, those little choices that we're making are saying quite the opposite. Mm. you know so it's an uphill struggle so we need to start there really I don't think one realizes necessarily either that you're in a dynamic like that you just think oh I'm just being a really nice person and then maybe every now and again you feel racked with resentment you're like oh why do I feel really angry at people but you kind of can get over it but I think it's taking that pause isn't it and saying actually where am I fitting in where am I putting myself on a list of priorities and that that's the really confronting job that sometimes someone needs the help of a therapist yeah. to be able to actually do. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking, would you speak to someone you care about in the way that you speak to yourself? And often the answer is, wow, 
Absolutely not. So if it's not good enough for them, it's really not, it's not good enough for you. It's not good enough for you either. Would you say that you're a recovered people pleaser? I'm, it's constantly something I think I'll be working on. However, it's so much easier now. Like I used to have to really try and fight with myself, sometimes mm. literally almost sit on my hands to stop me from raising it and be like, I'll do it. You know, going through my mind thinking, do I have capacity? Can I, can I give a real authentic yes to this and do it out of a place of willingness and, you know, happily given sacrifice rather than burnout, resentment, and I'm going to need something from them that they're probably not going to be able to give me in return. Mm. It actually enables you to make more authentic decisions and to be more wholehearted in what you're giving people, mm. which is, you know, it's good for a relationship. Can you spot, um, I can spot the person that I could get into a really unhealthy dynamic with a mile off now. And so I can make my escape through accordingly. But in the past, I would actually be drawn to those those personalities like like a moth to a flame. I've said many times before on this podcast, I am like a heat seeking emotional missile for the narcissist in the yeah. room. Yeah, because it's a perfect pairing, mm. you know, and they also keep you on your toes. So you might make them happy. You have to give a lot to make them happy and then you could get it wrong. And then you have to please them all over again and try and earn it back. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a bit of a perfect, terrible pairing, really. Mm. Can you it? spot people? Yes. Are, are you able to just now oh. read a room in a way that you simply couldn't yeah. before, having th- figured out? Yeah, historically, I can look over my life and be like, that's that dynamic, that's that dynamic, that's that dynamic. And it just had, I got to a point and it just had to stop um, because I started seeing the pattern mm. and... Yeah, I'm grateful for that. Have you been able to maintain any of those relationships or in a in a way that's boundaried or unfortunately when you recover from people pleasing yeah. is one of the effects casualties of Yeah, there have friends. been there have been there have been friendships that have had to I've just had to separate myself off from because they've need they've that dynamic has been what has allowed them to survive. Mm. Um so when you step out of that dynamic you yeah it's very hard for that relationship to exist and I work a lot with people who have those dynamics in families and that's really really hard because there's a really there's a whole grief journey attached to that when you start realizing that in order to stop the dynamic you might have to step away and that is you know mm-hmm. that's hard that is tough because you can you can really start implementing boundaries but it you can only implement boundaries from your side you can't control whether that other person respects or accepts them it's like that saying isn't it if you love someone set them free and if they're meant to be they'll come back to you but that's really hard when it's like yeah. your close friends and your family because there can be that fear attached to putting that distance between you because you're like what if they don't make the next move yeah yeah oh human relationship <laughs> It's complicated. It can but, be so complicated. <laughs> so complicated. Well, that's why we need to talk about it, I think, because um, I definitely for a long time lived in my own head and thought, I'm just a really garbage human. And um, that's these relationships are always so difficult and people treat me this way because I'm not worth very much. And actually, it isn't, it isn't as simple as that. <laughs> there might be elements of truth to it, but it isn't as simple as that. And I think unpicking it and realizing 
every like you speak to anybody everybody's fallen out with somebody everybody's got a tough dynamic with someone or everybody struggles with boundaries in some form of relationship and I think talking about these things and being really open about it yeah can make people feel far less alone as if they're they're the problem mm. because you're always going to be the common denominator in your own life of course but that doesn't always mean that you're the problem yeah. right yeah sometimes it can just be that we're we're, we're kind of attracted to certain people mm. that that feed a dynamic that we that feels very familiar to us even if it's not good mm. um, because that other person gets something out of it and you get something out of it and at the end of the day sometimes you realize that you're just kind of perpetuating each other's like yeah pain in a way break the cycle yeah <laughs> but it can come with a cost and this is what happens when we can address people pleasing sometimes we start learning that there are certain people who really benefited from us not having boundaries mm. and don't like the fact that we put them up. And then we can start questioning, is it wrong then that I'm putting this boundary here? And yeah. It's work. Well, that's an yeah. obstacle. <laughs> Clearly we could do another two hours we on that could. and it would probably descend into tears and just like yeah. being in a ball on the floor. So let's talk about your biggest challenge today. And you actually uh, said that there are several that I could choose from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so parenthood um, is a challenge every single day. Yeah, I've I've learned stuff about myself that I don't like and stuff that I'm incredibly proud of. I have learned how much energy we need as humans to be patient, <laughs> um, but that we can if we if we fuel ourselves. Um, I think I used to find rest very difficult. Mm. Like I'd kind of collapse into it rather than see it as something productive and just kind of looking after myself doing nice things for myself I, there would just be so much guilt around those things and I have really like my whole opinion on that has been totally transformed because I know that the relationships in my life um the only way they're going to be healthy is if I look after myself um it takes energy to be patient to rationalize anxious thoughts it takes energy to laugh we need you feel so tired sometimes that you've got no sense of humor <laughs> yeah you know yeah exactly you know it, we have to resource ourselves so that we can enjoy life and I think the very thing that I used to feel so much guilt around I've now started realizing that engaging in those things is actually an act of love mm. for the people around me so I don't feel guilty anymore when I sit down or say I can't do that or yeah because I'm loving people around me mm. by being kind to myself and that's been such a turning point it's uh the favorite word of the day it's a reframe isn't it it's a reframe <laughs> yeah it really is i need to do the things that i need to do so that i can give them what they need mm. and when we keep giving this is how burnout happens is that we kind of push through those we push through the boundaries of, of our own kind of energies and limits and resources so many times over and over again and then we just crash and we you know, get sad and angry and resentful and exhausted mm. and grumpy. Yeah. And yet, and yet, <laughs> I never rested when I was younger. I guess, as you said, you used to crash, you used to, used to sleep a bit more. Or yeah, nowadays, just, yeah. I would never think about a lion because I'm like, days to be had, life's for living. Whereas in my 20s, I think wouldn't think twice about having a lion. And I was wondering the other day about... Is that why we feel tired as, as we get older? Because perhaps we do sleep less, but we also consciously spend less of our time 
in an inactive state, if you like, yeah. because we're like, got to get up, got to be moving, got to be doing. And yeah. we just simply weren't when we were younger. And I think we just consume so much. We know kind of social media, we consume a lot on there and we're kind of always reading and researching and there's never a question that goes unanswered. Like mm. someone only has to say, oh, one of my kids is like, when did this happen in, you know, in the olden days? So we're whipping out our phones and there we go. Why do we have eyelashes? <laughs> why, do, why do we? Let me get Google out right now. I need to know. Is it to bat away the dust? I We can find out anything in moments and... Our brains have to process all this stuff that we're putting in there. And we think, oh, I'm just scrolling. But our brains our brains have to figure out what we need to know and what we don't need to know from all the stuff that's going past our, our eyes. And the other day, I've got this uh, Garmin watch now. Oh, my gosh. I like I love health data. It just gives me thrills. In an <laughs> ideal world, I'd know that my body was exhausted, right? And I'd be so tuned in and, you know, but I've spent so many years overriding that. And overriding mm-hmm. all the little signals, you know, to slow down, you're doing too much, shouldn't keep working out like this, that I find this so, I find it so interesting and helpful. Anyway, the other day I was on my sofa and I was scrolling Instagram and I looked at my little watch data thingy <laughs> and it showed stress. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to read my book. So I read a book for half an hour, rest, showed rest. which just It can showed, show stress on your watch. Uh, yeah. But it just showed I was lying on my sofa, scrolling, scrolling, and my body was experiencing that is mild stress. And then I read a book and a different part of our brain is used when we're kind of, it's more of a flow state. It's more, it's more kind of a different kind of wavelength. It's a lot more calming. Mm. And it showed I was lying the same spot on the sofa, showed rest. So we're exhausted and sometimes we don't even know why. But I think we're just consuming so much mm. stuff. And our brain's like, what's what's useful? What do I need to know? Where do I need to put this? Oh, I've just read a terrible story. Oh, that person's got a really nice house. Oh, you know, we're just going down these. Yeah, it's exhausting. And we don't realize it. We're also in the culture. We're also in the era of when you can hate watch things. Yes. So when we were <laughs> when we were growing up, you just watched things that you like. You elected to be in your home in front of the television when it was on because scheduled programming was a thing. Yeah. Whereas now you can access anything, but also you can access the things that you hate that you sort of somehow can't look away from. Yeah. Can you tell that this is something that I do, or maybe, maybe have a problem just a little with? bit, just a little <laughs> bit of an insight there. But <laughs> I sometimes am like, but I'm so transfixed by this that I simply cannot look away. But yeah, I know it's not good for me. So we've also got that going on, haven't we? Of like, you know, it's not great for you. Yeah, but but it's probably affirming something you're looking. So, so often we kind of, we look for proof of what we think is true about ourselves or what we think is true, even if it's not good. So if I'm feeling rubbish, I might, you know, subconsciously be looking for other people's beautiful photos of their really functional families and their, you know, calm personas. And I'm like, there's proof. See, right there. And it's just, we're just looking to scratch itches and mm. to be we like to think that what we think about ourselves is right we we don't like to think we're wrong so we tend to look for proof yeah which is why if we're feeling vulnerable a bit vulnerable to comparison we're, we're more likely to go to the place that's going to really harm that and push us deeper into it, it takes mm. discipline not to mm. and when you're tired mm, it's harder <laughs> it is. is that why i do it at three o'clock in the morning when Quite i wake possibly. up <laughs> maybe maybe stop doing that a little bit it's discipline it is it's hard it is hard let's talk about something much nicer which is your greatest success which is your um masters in psychotherapy there were so many things i could choose for this i 
I mean, the Masters, I think, was just just where all of my work that I do now kind of came from. Mm. And I think I remember getting that certificate through because it was quite a slog. You know, I had to really get back into that academic headspace. Yeah. Like loads of essays, get kind of the accreditation, which was a huge kind of application that we had to do and had to do 450 hours of supervised therapy. And it's, um yeah, so it was, it did feel like a massive, a massive thing. And I think it's hard sometimes to just dwell, like just to take a moment and think, I was amazing. I'm really proud of myself for that. Mm. I don't think we do that very often I'm often just like right next we can linger in the losses and not enjoy the wins I think very true especially how long was that masters did that Um, take that was so the masters part was two years and then it was another couple of years to get kind of the the accreditation I almost feel with things like that when it's taken a long time is that when it's done you almost go oh yeah phew yeah, rather like letting than out a, letting out breath, like oh, I didn't realise I'd been holding it for that long. Yeah, yeah. So it was. Yeah, I'm very proud of that, and I'm proud of you know writing books and stuff as well. Like that's just blows my mind sometimes. Well, three incredible books. Yeah. Did you know that that was going to be a part of the when you got that when you got the masters, the greatest success? Did you think? And now no. for my next <laughs> trick. I've got bits of books that I started writing when I was 12. I On my laptop, I've got random bits of books that I started writing when I was 19. Wow. And I've always just, I had, I've just loved words and writing. And I remember um, Instagram's amazing because I think you just, I would just write so much. I'd write these ridiculously long posts that would just, you know, get to the very end of the Instagram word limit. And I have to go and delete like spaces and 2, stuff. 2,200 characters. There we go. I'd, I'd be hyphenating everything and removing all the... Uh, no paragraphs, no, no full no stops. No full stops, no full stops. They can go. And I remember a literary agent coming, popping, sliding into my DMs and saying, have you ever thought writing about writing a book? And I'm like, yes, many times. And I, I was so excited. So excited. And it took, I think, a y- two years between that point and the first one coming out because another motherhood book was a bit of a risk I think for publishers to take mm. I just wanted someone to take a little risk take a little risk take a little risk on and you they did so that's great so the books have been um an incredible part of the journey but one of your regrets actually is really tied into this because you say it's the fact that you didn't do it earlier yeah I mean not just the books but the masters everything yeah in general. I mean it's one of those things, isn't it, that I probably couldn't have. I think I think an even bigger regret than than that is all the stuff. I think it's that I that I learned so much over the last number of years through training as a therapist, through having kids. I've learned so much. I wish I could go back and and take that knowledge with me mm. and do it again. Like, it would be very interesting. <laughs> what would how would I how would it be different if I'd gone back? with that knowledge and mostly with that compassion for myself to be honest Mm. and patience for myself because there wasn't any of that going on were you not very compassionate to to your younger self oh absolutely hated myself yeah absolutely hated myself just I think when everything every bit of my value and worth came from what I did for other people Mm. you know that there's nothing 
you're never going to please everyone. And I think that was just excruciating for me, knowing that there were going to be some people I couldn't please and some people that wouldn't like me. And so I just, I thought actually underneath it all, I'm not likable. I have to, I have to make people like me. Mm. And yeah, there was no, there wasn't any self-compassion at all in the way that I was treating myself and the way that I was talking to myself. And I think that's been one of the biggest things that, that's changed. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about kind of inciting that in other people. Um, because from that, so much can change. You start treating yourself differently. You start putting your boundaries in different places, making different decisions. You start thinking, well, actually, I'm not an imposter if I go for that or if this is happening to me. Um, and it just reshapes and it reshapes everything. Mm. So I'd love to go back and give myself a dollop of that and see what happens. Did you feel disconnected? From who you were. Yeah, because I, I literally felt like an imposter in my own life. You know, I was presenting this certain kind of person that I felt underneath it all, if they really knew what I was actually like, then they wouldn't like me. Um, so, yeah, I felt like, a, I felt like a, a fraud. Did you, I'm just, I, I'm thinking about something I thought about earlier and I'm just... Uh, thinking about my old version of myself, who I would also like to go back and, and yeah. um, give this insight to, is um, I never used to ask people to come over to where I lived. And if that was true for you. And I remember also sitting in a therapy session and I was talking about the fact that I'd been cleaning my friend's house because they liked it a certain way. And my therapist saying, "Are you? do you clean your house in the same way? And so, long pause. And I was like, well, I'm not dirty, but I would say it's kind of disorganized. And she was like, okay. So you put more effort into what your friend's house looks like than what your home mm. looks like or how, how you live. Is that what you're telling me? And it's things like that that you're like, oh my yeah. gosh. So that's why I just got a light and switched it on. Yeah. And you can't unsee that. And this is the amazing thing with these light bulb moments and these realizations and we think oh yeah I'm not very nice to myself but once you start realizing you, you can't unknow that mm. and uh, yeah I mean I remember I did some training in when I was when I was training I learned how to do nails gel nails right so I used to earn a bit of money to kind of pay kind of help pay for kind of living costs and stuff so if a friend ever came over to my house I'd 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 want to do their nails almost as as a payment for them coming to see me yeah. and you know, I always, I'd give them shoulder massages and I just want to lavish, lavish people with mm. a gratitude because I didn't want them to regret coming or, mm. yeah. And it's like, wow, well, you know, now I can have someone over and I, it's enough to make them a cup of tea. You know, like you're in my house, we're having a chat. Like, here's a cup of tea. Let's have a cup of tea together. I don't cup need to, I don't <laughs> need to kind of, you know, give you beauty treatments as a, as a thank you. And I remember this real pertinent moment after I'd had my third and a friend wanted to come over and meet the baby. And I just said, you know, I started typing out, don't don't come over, I'm a mess. I just felt I was just a hormonal, just I was so grumpy and tired. And then I thought, wait a minute, I'm not, this isn't where I'm at anymore. So I just said, come over, I'm a mess. And she came over and gave me a hug. And it was amazing. And it's just such a... It's such a shift. Like, mm. you know, I think when we get to that place where say, we're saying, you know, I'm a mess, stay away. 
And then we get to that place where we say, you know, I'm a bit of a mess, come over. Mm. Like that's when you think, ah, like these little things are working. That's the vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah. And I think sometimes people can think they're being strong by saying, stay away. I'm not, I'm not in the right state at the moment. But actually the strength is saying, please come because I'm not in the right state at the moment. Yeah, and that's where the relationship's built as well. And that's where, you know, people really do feel more able to ask you in those moments. And, and it feels, it's a real privilege to see people when they're feeling vulnerable and to know that they've let you into that moment and to just sit with them even if you can't really help them. And that's not nothing. That's, mm. you know, that's really intimate. And that's how relationships built. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm thinking and just be very open as I always am on this podcast, but I hate my birthday. Hate it. So my last birthday, I did not, I didn't want to speak to anybody. I was just down. I just hid basically. And then a few weeks later, a friend came over and said, look, I know you really struggle on your birthday. I was going to come over, but I just got the sense that mm. you would tell me to naff off. And actually what happened was I had a cry and said, I don't know why it's completely irrational. I really, really dislike my birthday, but it means the world to know that you even thought to come over because yeah. you know that. And I mean, I didn't say I'm a mess, come over. I still hid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, I would never have admitted that before. And I think going back to what we were talking about right at the top about being vulnerable. Yeah. So important. Sometimes there's another layer, isn't there? Even if you've had some therapy and even if you've been working on it, I remember in lockdown, I think it was my first book was out and I came downstairs and my husband and the kids had like laid the table and done cake and were all dressed up. And I honestly, I wanted to walk out the door. It made me want to cry because I just felt so uncomfortable it was just that attention it was on mm. you know just in the way that you might have felt if your friend had come over and come with some flowers that that kind of that in your face acknowledgement and pride and gratitude of who you are to them and I think it really upset me because I was like oh my gosh I've worked so hard on this why is this uncomfortable and it's just another it's just another layer every now and again and it doesn't mean that we haven't that what we've been doing and, and what we've been trying to work on hasn't worked it just means that every now and again there's just another layer that gets peeled away and you're like oh this is a deeper layer of discomfort mm -hmm. and actually the next book that was out I let it happen and I let them celebrate me and it was uncomfortable but I let it ha you know I didn't mm. want to run out the door crying and then the next one I I actually really welcomed that and celebrated it together so sometimes there is just another layer yeah that gets peeled away and I I think sometimes we can think that because somebody's done the work or they're like, oh, I I was depressed or I had a breakdown, but I'm yeah. not presenting in that way anymore. People can think, oh, fixed, all done. And actually, one of my favorite expressions, because I find it quite comforting, is recovery isn't linear. Yeah. And sometimes you can have come such a long way and then something will set you back massively. And you're like, okay, well, thank God I've got the coping mechanisms I've got from the, the work I've done yeah. to deal with that. But that really has thrown me and I wasn't expecting it yeah it's like growing pains isn't it you remember mm. when you did your parents you say growing pains I remember mm. you know my legs are aching growing pains I'm five and foot four was, I didn't have many growing <laughs> oh, pains I had, a, <laughs> I, had, I had a few growing pains and it's sometimes we're just we're just growing into a new space and mm. you know we haven't shrunk and taken a step back we're just kind of we're just growing into a, a bigger experience of whatever that was to us and mm. and it's still growth yeah um 
Yeah. It is still growth. You're absolutely right. And realizing that we're hurtling towards our time together because ah. we've allowed ourselves to get very deep today. Um, I want to ask you about your weakness because you said that it was perfectionism and a dodgy attitude to the rest that means that you regularly find yourself burnt out. And I would imagine that a lot of people listening to this podcast can absolutely relate to this idea that you've got to be perfect. And I don't think we're, we expect that of any group of people more than mothers. Yeah. I think the idea that you've got to be absolutely perfect, can't put a foot wrong, and your child also has to behave completely perfectly <laughs> and have all the right things, <sighs> that is such a huge pressure. So how have you been able to, have you been able to release yourself uh, from a perfectionist mindset? Yeah, con constantly having to do so, to be honest. Um, do you know what I think? Recognizing that the world is incredibly imperfect and if I'm trying to replicate some kind of perfection, then I'm not actually preparing my children very well to mm -hmm. navigate the world, um, supporting them through disappointment and seeing and the repair that comes when I've shouted or I've parented in a way that I'm not proud of. And I can find ways to explain to them that sometimes we're just tired and grumpy and, you know, we don't say nice things and I'm really sorry and I love you and... I think that's been really helpful and not beating myself up yeah. when it goes awry and not choosing not to kind of let that guilt turn into shame because I think sometimes we go from I've done a bad thing that wasn't ideal to I am a bad person, I don't deserve my kids or I don't deserve the love that comes from them and then we can find ourselves kind of defending ourselves against against love and connection and so when I feel guilty now, I just think, well, there's a prompt to have me look at what went on and what might I do? What do I need? Do I actually just need to go for a walk or, or rant to a friend? And focusing on the repair more than trying to be right all the time because yeah. that's just not realistic or sustainable and will find us in burnout and being cross with ourselves. Mm. And my kids don't need that either. Do you now, can you now spot burnout before it happens? I'm not very good at that, to be honest. <laughs> My therapist often says, you know, it's funny, Anna, because suddenly uh, you're you're here again. And I just, <laughs> you know what? I just love, I love my job. I love it. I love, you know, I've got a really full and fast life and it's fun. It's hard. And I think I have to really make space for rest. I went through a burnout a couple of years ago that I've never experienced anything like it. It was really visceral. It was like a full nervous system burnout after the pandemic. And it really scared me because it made me realise how, you know, we're not just ahead doing all the things, dragging our body along. You know, we are a full body in person and we need we need to be respecting, you know, all the different facets of ourselves. And we need to rest. It's mm. It's a human requirement it's not an indulgence it's yeah if we want to do good things we need to rest as well um we need to put in what we're putting out and that was yeah it's very humbling that experience really made me start respecting my body and my nervous system and what I'm asking of it and what I'm giving it in return it's that thing isn't it of um you can go through a burnout or anything a few times and then there'll be a time where you think oh no, I, next time I even smell that yes. in the distance or see the shape of it coming, I will 
know that that means an emergency stop. It's not just about, oh, I will make time when it's it's no, we're stopping now. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to I don't want to get to that place again. So I think I just for me, it's my my mom or a friend texts me and I feel like that's an inconvenience. I'm like, oh, it's just another thing to do. You know, when maintaining relationships that are really important to me in a few text messages or, you know, when that feels too much, that's a that's a real flag. Mm. Yeah. You're just making me chuckle because at the end of last year, I was just, every time my email went or anything, I'd just be like, yeah, at my computer, much. just telling it to F off or just swearing at inanimate objects. Yeah. Because, yeah, I just need, I had allowed myself to get too yeah. far down that road. It was making me chuckle. Right. Um, let is, let's talk about, because this really feeds into it, actually. I asked you about a time when you were wrong and you said when you thought you could do it all over and over and over again, inevitably, that would lead to burnout. So how did you realize you couldn't do it all? How did you make peace with that? Yeah. And what strategies have you put in place so that your cup is full but doesn't runneth over yeah <laughs> so it was actually that burnout and we were meant to go away for our first break after the pandemic when you could and we were going to my husband's kind of family home in wales and i was just i was in such a way that even thinking of packing was would send me into a state of panic and tears and my husband couldn't even broach what time shall we leave um, because <laughs> i would start crying so on the day it came to pack he took the kids out and I remember sitting on the floor in the kitchen with a water bottle in a jute bag, crying because I could not even face, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I literally couldn't do it. I couldn't even face the thought of being in a car with five of us and the kids. And, you know, it was, I, I didn't have it in the tank and I felt so painfully guilty. And I called my mum crying and she said, Anna, what if you just don't go? And suddenly I felt this massive just release and relief and guilt of I can't mm. and that means no one can really um that means it's not happening and that's really sad and I felt this massive guilt and I suddenly thought wait a minute this has come because I have been the cost in this pandemic you know my resources have been scraped just trying to keep everything going and everyone together so you know if I if I put a a holiday on a credit card as a family credit card that would be our debt to pay mm. you know that would be if we were to go away and enjoy that holiday we would then have to repay that debt that debt we benefited from that debt we need to repay it and i thought my burnout is basically the debt so therefore that and i have spent myself on the collective i've had to and therefore we need to repay that debt as a family the cost is the family cost and and it really helped me i think recognize that my burnout is not just my burnout it's everyone's mm. like it affects everyone so therefore I need to recruit my family so that I can get the things that I need so that I can give them what they need mm. so the kids will see me working out the kids will have me saying wait a minute no I'm just resting on the sofa five minutes I'll do that in five minutes or my husband you know can you take over because I just need a breather you know so I ask for help now because I know that they need me to ask for help mm. and I don't feel like I'm burdening people because I know what the real cost in the end of mm. not doing that is, is that I can't help anyone and then things really do <laughs> fall apart a bit. It's such an incredible journey because even at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how the fear of saying what you need 
or actually not even having the skills to know how to articulate what you need because it was something that you hadn't done before. Coming all the way to the end of this conversation, you not only know how to express yourself, but you know when is appropriate and you also know the impact it has on the people around you. It sounds as though, it feels as though it's been a real gift, not just for you, but for your life and your family too. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I think these things often can be the messiest bits. So let's end with what makes you hopeful. And you said, which I love, because we've gone from perfectionism to this, my increased acceptance of life's life's and my messiness. Mm. So you don't fight against it anymore. You're far more uh, likely to go with the flow and have patience and grace for yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I'm really annoying. I literally <laughs> lock myself out the house so many times. It, it's like a joke. I drop things. I break things. I forget things. I turn, you know, rock up to my kid's school on where we like day and they're in their uniform. I, and I, and I think I just used to be so cross with myself all the time. And now I just like lovingly eye roll at myself and think, Oh, here we go again. And I, and I just think that shift is, is huge because we all have these little things about us and you know some things maybe we can change and maybe sometimes it's just best to accept that you know Mm. I do stuff like that and that's just part of who I am yeah so yeah and then the other stuff you know the emotional messy stuff letting people in when it's happening rather than when it's all kind of tied up neatly with a bow at the end and I can talk about in retrospect and yeah and be like, don't worry, there's nothing you need to do. Yeah, it's all good. All sorted, all sorted, yeah. but just so you know. Yeah, this happened, but I'm fine now. Yeah, move those barriers a little bit. It's been so lovely to chat to you. And actually, I think you mentioned a couple of times about light bulb moments. And I think what you do with your podcast, because it's 10 minutes and then 20 minutes, is, and you'll know this from having been in the therapy room and you take these conversations out of the therapy room, sometimes you can hear the same saying, or you can say the same thing out loud a dozen times, but there's this one time when it can just be a few words, a sentence, a phrase, whatever it might be, that suddenly hits you in a way that it didn't hit you before. And once you hear it in that way, you can't unhear it yeah. and it forever changes you. And I think that's what you do really skillfully with the podcast and that you you sort of fashion them into these light bulb moments. And so if you are listening to this and you are feeling that any of what we've talked about resonates, you are probably likely going to listen to your podcast and hear something that will make that change, be the change that you needed to hear. Thank you. That's what I hope. And they're all just light bulb moments I've had. I just throwing them out there, hoping to switch (laughs) on some more. (laughs) I love it. Just light bulbs everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you for having me. I've loved it. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one.